Good morning and welcome everyone. <clears throat> we have a wonderful uh, topic from God's Word this morning about Christian assurance. And uh, before we open God's Word together, I would just like to come before him, pray on my own behalf and pray on your behalf. Let's, let's bow together and pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be before you today. We thank you, Lord, for all your wonderful love and grace and mercy that's been poured out towards us in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We thank you, Lord, for your precious word. And as we come before you and these pages are opened, we would pray that you would be gracious to us and you would open our hearts and minds and that by your Holy Spirit you will endow us with uh, sight to see what the Spirit says to the churches, and ears to hear. Now, Lord, we pray that we might hear your voice today. We know, Lord God, where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. But today, Lord, we pray that we might feel your presence, we might know you're here, you would make your presence known, that you would touch each one of us with your word and bless us with these words of life, the eternal life. And so, Father, we commend ourselves to you now and pray that you would glorify yourself in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. You may have noticed uh, in the past year or so that there's been a great amount of uh, insurance advertising on the telly. And there's insurance for funerals, there's insurance for life, there's insurance for teeth, there's insurance for dogs. And you could even get your wife insured, which is a great idea. But there's, there's one fact. 100% of people who take out life insurance die. Absolutely true. So if you've got it, hang on to it. It may be worth something. Last week I had, uh, um, I don't know whether it was a privilege, it's definitely a privilege, but I went to Sydney for a funeral. A close friend of ours lost their son, tragically, uh, 32 years of age. Joshua uh, grew up in our church back in Sydney and uh, he had uh, three other siblings that I taught in Sunday school there. Anyway, he was on a, a Bucks party in New Zealand and he tragically drowned when the boat overturned and he was a policeman. He had six other policemen with him. They all went into the water. But unfortunately, he was the last one out and he died uh, tragically of hypothermia. And so I went to Sydney last week for the funeral. Now as we gathered, it was an unusual funeral, um, not a typical Christian funeral with a lot of celebration. It was a police funeral. So there were over 200 police from New South Wales there at the funeral. It gave the parents a great sense of importance, I think, um, because of, the, um, because of the, the formality of it. Um, but there was something missing from it. And I think the underlying issue was, amongst all the believers there, was that this young man, uh, there was some doubt and some conjecture about whether he was a Christian or not. And though he'd grown up in a Christian family, um, he had... Uh, perhaps neglected uh, regular worship and he had neglected uh, the things of God. And so as we stood around that open grave and the scripture says it's better to go to a funeral than a feast, for therein we consider our end. And as we all looked into that open grave, it became apparent to me, clear to me, that every one of us, though we don't think about it, are going to that place, not that particular grave, that would be rather crowded but we're going to our own grave. That this, that's one thing that's certain about life, or two things, taxes and death. And taxes are coming, and so is death. And we need to be ready for it, and we need to be, um, and we need to be prepared for it. 
And in 1 John uh, chapter 3, sorry, 1 John chapter 2, it has this lovely verse in verse 3, which is the main text of our message this morning. And it says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Listen carefully to the words. And hereby we do know that we know him. And I'm thankful that it doesn't say, uh, and hereby we know him because if we keep his commandments. I'm glad it doesn't say that. It's not talking about becoming a Christian by keeping his commandments. We can't become a Christian by keeping his commandments. He's already stated very clearly the grounds for our salvation, the grounds for us being in Christ, our claim to heaven is in verse 1 and 2. That Christ, the righteous one, he is our advocate. He is our legal paracleton, one called alongside in the courtroom of God to declare our righteousness. We have one seated in heaven today, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he ever lives to make intercession for his people. So regardless of what condition you may in today, Christian, no matter whether you're walking strongly with the Lord or whether you're in doubt and whether you're concerned about the things of life, no matter where you may stand today, if you're in Christ, you're safe. If you're in Christ, your eternal salvation is sure, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done through Christ on your behalf and what Christ is doing this very moment in heaven. He's seated. He sat down once and for all and he's seated ever living to make intercession for you by the power of his endless life. That secures us. That's the ground. That's the root of our salvation. And John, having mentioned these two things in verses 1 and 2 in the great propitiation the atoning sacrifice uh, for our sins. Having done that, he now moves on to Christian assurance. He's now no longer talking about justification. He's talking about the outworking of salvation. He's talking about the fruit. He's talking about the flower. And he says of the Christian, hereby we do know that we are knowing him if we are keeping his commandments. Before you were a Christian, you could not keep his commandments. Before you were a Christian, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You had no capability. You had no power. You had no, no way. You had no will to call upon him without his deliberate drawing, without his deliberate empowering to embrace the promises of God in Christ. And so you're saved because of what he's done. And this outworking, this keeping of his commandments is a fruit of our salvation. And now as a Christian, as a new creature in Christ, you have a new ability. You have a new principle of life that can keep his word, that can keep his commandments and loves them. And John goes on to say, his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are wonderful. And we'll look more about that uh, more particularly in a moment. So this morning I'm going to look at, first of all, three general points about assurance, which I think affect us all. Then we're going to look at what is this commandment he's speaking of in particular, why we should obey this commandment, and then finally, in a practical sense, how can we keep his commandments uh, as, as God's people. The first point I'd like to make is that a low level of assurance is a common problem amongst God's people. Have you felt doubts as a Christian? Have you felt some uncertainty about the future at times in your life? 
Well, this is common amongst God's people. In 1 John uh, 2 and verse 21, it says this, John writing, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it and that no lies of the truth. So what he's saying is that I'm not saying by focusing on these fruits and about talking about assurance, I'm not saying that I don't think you're a Christian. In fact, I'm sure you are a Christian. But I want you to be knowing that you know him. That's the important thing. Do you know that you're knowing him? That's the important thing. And that knowing, that assurance, that confidence in Christ is uh, an outworking, a fruit of being his people, a demonstration that you are uh, indeed his people. You notice he addresses uh, three groups of people. Um, We won't read all verses 12 to 14, but verse 13 sums them up in some sense. And it's interesting how John waits the middle of chapter 2 to actually tell you who he's talking to, unlike a normal letter where you address the people first. But in verse 13 he says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. So he's absolutely certain that these people have embraced Christ. He's certain that they're Christians. But he's saying that you need to demonstrate that great work of grace in your heart. And he's going to tell you in a moment how to do it. So the first point is a low level of assurance is a common problem amongst God's people. Secondly, assurance is not a condition of salvation. Assurance is not a condition of salvation. In 1 John 3 and verse 18 it says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him, we'll look at that a little bit later, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we are having confidence towards God. What a wonderful thing this is. Even when your conscience is contrary to God's work of grace in your heart, even when your thoughts are contrary to the reality of who you are in Christ and your new position as a new creation in Christ, even when you think the worst of yourself, God knows your heart. God knows. God knows. Paul says, uh, and I forget exactly where the reference is, Paul says, we have this seal. God knows those who are his. He knows you. And your state of mind has no, will make no change upon your position in Christ. This is a great encouragement. Now, I preach uh, fairly regularly at the Riverview um, nursing home in Moraine. I've been preaching there for about 18 months, got to know the, the, uh, uh, the LV people there. Most of these people are suffering all sorts of various diseases, dementia, one of the main ones, stroke, and uh, brain disease, blood disease, and every other thing under the sun that, that takes us to the grave. Even man flu, one of the worst of all. There's a fellow there by the name of David. I call him King David, so I remember his name. So King David, he, he's a very tall man. He's 98 years of age. Lived in Lindisfarne most of his life. Married 62 years to his wife. And... Uh, uh, been a, a, in this one church over at Lindisfarne for over 32 years. Great man, wonderful, humble, gentle man of 98 years. His boast is that he doesn't have to use a walking stick. 
<coughs> I like him. He said to me, we were preaching once on uh, leaving this world empty, leaving this world naked. And he said to me after the, after the message, he said, um, he fairly said, I have all of my life in two boxes in my room. I said, what, what have you got in there? He said, well, I've got a collection of 180 pre-Second World War model cars and they're in these two boxes. I said, can I have them when you die? <laughs> anyway, recently I was preaching from the last verse in, in uh, David's great psalm, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Pick up the assurance here, the confidence. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a glorious statement. What a wonderful thing. Can you say that with David? I will dwell. Not I hope I will dwell. And one day, as I was saying, I was speaking to David after this particular sermon and I said, we were talking about eternal life and David said to me, he said, Phil, I hope I will go to heaven. I hope I will go to heaven. I said, David, David, you can know you're going to heaven. Not a hope so. And there is a hope in the word of God that's a sure, steadfast hope. Our anchor is cast within the veil. It's in heaven. Can't be moved. It's unmovable. If you're in Christ, you're blameless, spotless, unreprovable. In Christ, you're cleansed, you're washed, whiter than snow. And though your sins be double-dyed with scarlet, Isaiah says, double-dyed with sin, you shall be white as snow. And if you're in Christ today... You are white as snow, blameless before a sin-hating and holy God. Why? Because you keep the Lord? No. Because you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, your righteousness. So David has a hope so. And I said, David, you can know. You can know. And you should know that you are a Christian, that you are going to heaven with absolute certainty. And you'd want to know at that time in your life. <laughs> My poor friends who don't know that and they're in the nursing home and they're struck down with, with a, a stroke or some great calamity. There was one man there that first preached to uh, when I, the, I was there uh, 18 months ago and I first preached and they rolled him out on the bed and he was a full stroke victim. He lay on the bed and he's, his mouth was open. He, didn't, he can't move a single part of his body. And he, just, he, he lay there. I preached away and when I'd finished, we, Dawn and I got down. Uh, Dawn didn't get down, but I got down to be with Dawn and met with the people there and spoke with them. And uh, I saw this man lying over by himself. No one was going near him. He couldn't converse. And I felt compelled, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to, how to approach him. I didn't know what, what I should uh, say to him. Anyway, so I went home and I felt so guilty. Why hadn't I spoken to him? Why, why, what's stopping me from talking to him about the things that we've said? So I prayed, Lord, give me the opportunity, I hope, to speak with him again. And I went back the next time, not there. Went back the next time, not there. Next time, not there. And then I go again and they roll him out. And there he is. So I preach away and when I finished, I go down to him. And I said, uh, I walked up to him and I said, and he's just lying there, mouth open, not blinking, not moving. And I said, I hope you uh, heard everything I said today. And without moving his lips, with as clear a voice as I'm talking to you, he said, yes, I heard it. I went, wow, how did, how did he say that? And I said, listen, I've got a copy of Psalm 23 that I've given out to the other residents. Would you like it? I said, can you read? And he says, in a very sarcastic tone, of course I can read. <laughs> Do I look disabled? 
I added that bit in. A bit of colour. Are you knowing that you are having eternal life? It's the, the biggest thing in your Christian life. And, uh, but assurance is not a condition of salvation. Assurance is not a condition of salvation. And no matter whatever state of mind you fall into during your life as a Christian, you are saved because God saves you, not because of anything uh, you do or can say for yourself. And I'm sure David knows that. Secondly, um, thirdly, assurance of salvation can be measured. Assurance of salvation can be measured in John 1 and verse 4. It says there, John says, I'm writing these things so that your joy might be full. Your joy might be full. Now, there's one simple thing we can do this morning, not real, not, not ring real insurance. There's one simple thing we can do this morning, and it's a little test, and... Uh, I just want you for a moment just to think about this. On a scale of 0 to 10, I think we may have done this before, on a zero scale of a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being absolutely miserable, not that any of you are, but 0 being absolutely miserable and 10 being absolutely ecstatic, full of joy, where are you? What, what number comes to your mind? And I'm doing this because if I just asked you point blank, you'd probably tell me a lie but your conscience will tell you the truth, and whatever number is appearing in your head now is the number. I did this little test with um, the Overseas Christian Fellowship leaders uh, a couple of weeks ago. We met for coffee, and I hope to be doing some work with them in the next 12 months or so. And uh, these two young gentlemen, Sam and Wee, that's his name, (laughs) Wee and Sam, uh, I said to them, I gave them this test, and I said, now guys, what's your number? What's your number? And they looked at each other very sheepishly, didn't want to be the first one to say their number in case the other one was higher than them. <laughs> and, uh, and they both looked at each other and at the same time they said, seven. And I said, guys, be encouraged, I'm a seven too. I know I'm going to heaven. I know that I'm safe, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I'm safe in Christ, I'm sure of heaven. God's my father, heaven's my home. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But I'm a seven. What does it mean? Well, it means I can grow. It means I can step up. And also means that it's variable. Your joy, your assurance is a variable thing. It rises and falls with, with how you're walking with God. I did the same test on myself this morning and I came up with nothing. I think I was just tired. <laughs> there was no number there. But I think I might have moved just a smidgen through the last week in studying 1 John. So it can be measured. Our assurance of salvation, it, it can be measured. And it's measured by our joy. Are you joyful? Are you knowing him? So do you know that you're knowing him? And then we come to uh, our first point, and uh, I'm going to make three points here. One, first of all, is what is this commandment that he's speaking of? And then secondly, um, we're going to look at three um, reasons why we should obey him. And then we're going to look at a couple of reasons of how we should obey him. So in uh, just reading the text here in, in 1 John 2 and verse 3, it says, "...and hereby we do know that we know him." If we keep his commandments, what are these commandments? Now, the word here in the Greek is a general term for commandments. So it's not particularly talking about the Ten Commandments, I don't think. Well, let's not wriggle away from the Ten Commandments because we have the power to be able to keep God's Word as a Christian. A new ability, a new principle of life in us that conforms to his Word. But we notice how he generalises a little bit in a moment and then it gets very specific. In verse 4 he says... He that says, I know him, and note that, he that says, 
It's his words, not his life necessarily. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Truth, more general term. Whosoever keeps his word, commandments, truth, his word, whoever keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God, grown to completion, perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Hereby we know uh, we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought also to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. So what is this old commandment, new commandment? What's he talking about? Well, what was the old commandment? We know that it's summarised in the New Testament as being, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. So what's new about this? Well, now John interprets this commandment and he applies it to the church. And he says, the first commandment is to love the Lord, yes. The second commandment is to love your brother, to love your brother. We notice this word in verse 10. He says, he that loveth, and the King James again adds an ETH on the end of a word that's present continuous. It means it's having a continuing effect. And it says, he that continues to love, and the Greek word here is agape. Agape, um, again, means much in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. I know a little Greek. Her name is Thelma. The Greek word, uh, again, means much, and so I think that the agape is uh, much love. It's a, it's a different to phileo, and uh, one fellow in college used to call me phileo, brotherly love. It's different to fondness. It's, it's difficult to being a friend of. It's agape. It's, it's not conditional. We make friends of people who we like, we like the way they look, we like the way they do their hair, we like the way they smell, or conversely, we don't like those things. But that's con- liking is conditional, but we're not, we're not commanded to like one another. That's a great relief, because I don't like you. And I'm sure you don't like me, though I can't see why you wouldn't. Handsome, intelligent, easy to get along with, and most of all, humble. <clears throat> So here's a great relief. We are not commanded to fill out each other. We're not commanded to be friends. We might be friends, and that, that's great. I had a great amount of friends at the funeral last week, people I'd known for many decades, grown up with them. I was at Joshua's birthday and his burial day. Great friends. One of the fellows said in there, the police that were there, these 200-odd police that were there in all New South Wales, hierarchy of police, They'd only known him for 10 years. We'd known him all of his life. And we had many, uh, Dawn and I had many friends there throughout uh, a number of generations. Not that many generations. A number of decades, sorry. So we're not called to like each other. We're called to love each other. Now we have three commandments, three, sorry, reasons why we should keep his commandment. The commandment is to love your brother sacrificially. We'll look at how we do that at the moment. The first three reasons why, and the first reason 
is found in 1 John 3 and verse 23. 1 John 3 and verse 23. The first reason why we should obey his commandments. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, the same word, agape, love one another as he gave commandment. The first reason why we should obey his commandment is because he commands it. The first reason is he has said it, therefore we should obey it. Now you can all grab a biscuit, grab your coffee and go home, that's all we need. You don't need two more reasons why you should obey God. God commands it, therefore we should obey it. First of all, and notice how they're intertwined together, he intertwines your faith in Christ and says, you're commanded to believe in Christ, that's his first command, and connected intrinsically to that command is loving one another. And if you obey his command to believe in Christ, you'll obey his command and love one another. You have that new principle of life within you that allows you or gives you the capability of loving one another, of seeing over all the faults of your brother, of loving them in spite of the fact that they're unlikable, putting all all those things that are not attractive to you, all those things away and loving them because uh, you're commanded to love them. Remember, or you remember, if you're a parent here, when your first kid, when your kids first get their voice and they start asking questions and you say something and they say, why? And you say something and they say, why? And you say something and they say, why? 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 Then you say, because I said so. That's why. Then they say, why? (laughs) You've got nowhere to go. God says it here. You're commanded to love one another. You can't escape it. You can't wriggle out of it. You're commanded. God says it. That settles it. You must comply. And you can. You can comply. In Acts 17 and verse 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him out from among the dead. Wonderful assurance of our salvation, that God raised him up and with that same power he will raise our bodies up at the end, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The second point is, the first one is he commands us to, the second point is he is in your brother. He is in your brother. 1 John 2 and verse 14 says, the word of God in the young men abides in you, it lives in you, he dwells in you. And in Matthew uh, 25, and I'd like to read this passage to you. I was deliberating whether or not to actually quote this and actually read it in a devotional yesterday. It wasn't in the context of 1 John, but uh, William J., the writer of this particular devotional book, mentioned half my sermon yesterday morning. And I was deliberating at the time whether I should include this verse, and I believe I should include it, so we will uh, read this particular passage. It says this in verse 31 of Matthew 25, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, we've sung about it uh, this morning, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And we've seen this, uh, Dan I think mentioned it a few weeks ago in his sermon, I mentioned in a previous sermon, about the great white throne judgment, before whom the heavens and the earth flee away and has found no presence for them. The books are opened 
and the dead are judged outside of the, uh, for the things they've done, whether good or evil, uh, out of the books. And anyone's name who's not written in the Lamb's book of life is taken and cast into a lake of fire. And here's another little window into this particular day, this particular scene. And verse 32, it says, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from the other, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And so here we have this incredible congregation of all humanity. All humanity's there on this day. And there's only one division. Goats on the left, sheep on the right. Now in the Middle East, in, in the Middle Eastern countries, the sheep and the goats look very much like each other. They uh, even taste like each other. If you have goat chops, they taste a lot like lamb chops. A little bit of mint sauce, <coughs> get away the gaminess, but they're, they're very much the same. So all the lamb chops go on his right and all the goat chops uh, go on his left. There's a great separation on this day. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know that you're knowing him? In verse 34 it says, Then the king shall say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you uh, before the foundation of the world. You will hear these words in your, vo- in, in your ears, Christian. These words, you're going to hear them. You're going to be there. This is a, a window into the future, a not too distant future, when we'll be gathered there on his right as his people. When I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you gave me a file. You came to me. And in verse 37, Then shall a righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we? When, when, when did we see you hungry? When did you see you thirsty? When did you see you naked? When were you sick and we came and saw you? And the king... The king, the king shall answer and say unto you, truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren. In Hebrews it says he's not ashamed to call us brethren. When you've done it to the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. You have done it unto me. We should love God's people because he is in them. When we love them and are loving them, we are loving him in them. And that's, a main, that's one of our main reasons for obeying his command. And thirdly, the last reason for obeying him, he loves them. He loves them as he loves me and he loves you if you're in Christ. In 1 John 3 and verse 1, and these are, are wonderful words, 1 John 3. It says, Behold, behold what manner of love, behold what type, behold what quality of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, Agapetos, divinely loved ones. Beloved, now are ye the sons of God. You are sons of God. You understand that? You are, if you're a Christian, the most important person on earth today. 
No, no more important than I am. But you are the most important person on earth today. You are a son of the living God. A strong reason for obeying commandment, he loves them. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, in 1 John 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Agapos, agape, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and continually knows God. This word, uh, gnosko, means an absolute knowledge. He who loves is born of God, born from above, from John chapter 3, and he knows God. 1 John 4 and verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, here's the obligation, here's the duty, we ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we ought to love, that's our duty, that's our obligation, that we love one another. Do you know that you know him? Do you know with absolute certainty that you know him. Now we're going to come to, um, coming to the end now. Stay in your seats. Now we're coming to the end and we're coming to a practical section of, of our message. I'm going to talk about how we obey this commandment, how we obey this commandment. And uh, our first point here is, and they're very similar, the first point is giving and the second point is like unto it, forgiving. Giving and forgiving. In 1 John 3 and verse 16, it says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Having this world's good, seeing our brother in need. And I better read this. It's such a good passage. In verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, what does that mean today? We're not under threat Our lives are not being threatened in the first century. Your life may well have been under threat and you may well have had the chance to give up your life for someone in in amongst the lions or in the fire. And you may have been able to do that. Perhaps we may not have that opportunity now. Perhaps in our lifetime, in our generation, we may get the chance to lay down our life, have that opportunity, have that test if you like. But here he's speaking to people who knew this in, in fact and reality. Whosoever, he says, has this world's good, the word word means uh, the things of this life, livelihood. Whoever has this world's livelihood and sees his brother having need and shuts up his bowels of compassion. Forgive the word. The Greek word is spleen. And it didn't sound right, does it? Shut up your your, uh, spleen of compassion. And it really means the heart. It means that this is deep down inside you. It's right down inside. You've got to dig it out. You see your brother in need, you've got to dig it out. You've got to show them compassion. How, if you don't, how does the love of God dwell in you? Little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, in word and tongue sound very similar, but I think he's talking about in word being writing. So, in word in this uh, day and age, texting perhaps, emailing perhaps, but more likely texting. So in text or in tongue, they go together, don't they? In text or in tongue, no. And it's lovely to receive a text. Someone's showing care, someone telling you that they're thinking of you and so on, not diminishing that at all. But John is saying, let's go a little bit higher than just speaking about it, but actually let's think about 
what we can do. Let us not love in word nor in tongue, but in deed and truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him when we demonstrate giving to another Christian. When I was in Bible college some centuries ago, um, I think I failed every subject. Uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, I worked for about six months when I first got there in David Jones. I didn't work in his house. It's actually a uh, corporate body who owned a big uh, retail store in Adelaide at the time. And I worked uh, in David Jones cleaning toilets for about six, six months when I first got there. And it was my second year of Bible college and uh, I was working late at night and I'm, I'm, I was really frustrated. I didn't have the time to study and I thought, I'm here to study the Word, I'm here to prepare for the ministry and here I am cleaning toilets of all things. I haven't got the time to, to do what I need to do to fulfil my calling. And so I prayed about it much and in the end I decided, no, nope, I'm going to pack in that wonderful job cleaning the toilets and I'm going to trust God. Now at that time, the Lord put it in the heart of a lady in a church where I was first converted, Church of Christ in Cameltown in New South Wales. Now, having gone to Bible college, I never went back there. I went back to visit, but uh, got dislocated from that church and went to Bible college and then things changed. So I didn't have a lot of contact with the people, but God laid it on the heart of a lady in that church, uh, Faye, her name was, to give me $20 a fortnight out of a pension. And I had nothing else. And for 18 months, I ate $20 out of her pension. I remember getting the postal order in the old days when you got checks in the post and took it down and cashed it, got the $20 out, went straight down to Coles, bought two loaves of bread and a big block of cheese, the biggest block I could get, and I lived on cheese on toast for the rest of that two weeks. Now, I gained, lost a little bit of weight during that time, you would have noticed, but um, uh, those were great times. And what was she doing? She didn't particularly like me. She was loving me. She was giving out of this world's good, out of a pension. You say, I haven't got enough, I can't afford to. I, no, give your two mites. Dig down deep and give your two mites. I remember one particular time, there was a fellow in college and he had, uh, unlike me, he had three kids and he had holding down three jobs and we were, at a bio, we were at a prayer meeting and he said he was just complaining that he had this uh, bill. Again, this is, I don't know how many years ago, I'm not going to tell you, but it was quite a few years ago, when money meant something, and, uh, and he, was, he needed $20. You know, I just got the cheque, and the Lord laid on my heart, give, give, give him your $20. So I went down the bank, and I cashed it, and I took it out, and for the first time in my life, handed over to him, I had nothing. You know what I felt? The most liberated I've ever felt since then? I had nothing. I went down the road, and I was skipping. I was, I was whistling. I had nothing, but I had everything. And... Um, and Faye had taught me that. Give sacrificially uh, one to the other. And then secondly, and, and in our final point, so giving is the way in which we keep his command to love one another. And secondly, forgiving, and this is so important. And in Colossians, another lovely passage, which I'll read to you, Colossians 3 and verse uh, 12, it says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, the chosen of God, holy and beloved, in other words, he's made you holy and he, his love is upon you. Bowels of mercies. Here it is again. Spleen of mercy, of compassion. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing. And the word means holding up, forbearing one another, holding each other up and forgiving one another. 
If any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also ye should do. As Christ forgave you, so also you should do. At the Overseas Christian um, uh, Fellowship Easter weekend, Campbell and I both preached there. And I did a bit of a workshop on prayer. And in that workshop, we, uh, we just got together and we worked out what our primary prayer was for the next four months. What's the one thing that we wanted to achieve with God? And at the last day, uh, we had a bit of a shared time and this one guy said, listen, during that time, my prayer point was that my grandfather come to Christ. My grandfather come to Christ. And he explained, he said that some years ago, before he was born, his grandfather had gone guarantor for a minister where he lived in China. And the minister shot through like a Bondi tram, or a Hobart tram, we haven't got trams, but he shot through and left him with the debt. His grandfather lost his home, lost everything, so his father had to travel to China and work there for a year to recover him. And I said, Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt, his name is. It wasn't Roosevelt, I just remember that, to remember his name. Theodore, I said, have you forgiven him? Have you forgiven that pastor, that minister, who wrought havoc on your family? I said, you want us to pray for your grandfather? You have to forgive that man. That man, we assume, is a Christian. You can't hold that bitterness and that resentment and that anger towards a believer. You cannot hate your brother and love Christ. You cannot say you love God whom you cannot see and you do not love your brother whom you can see. And Theodore said, you're right. And And he bowed his head and he prayed and and ask God to forgive him, and ask God to forgive that minister, that man. And afterwards he said to me, the funny thing is, Phil, my father met my mother when he went over there, and I was born. I was born out of sin. What a wonderful thing. And and, uh, Theodore has a wonderful uh, assurance of his salvation. In Matthew 5 and verse 23, 24, we'll finish here. It It says this, Therefore... If you bring your gift to the altar, it's Old Testament context here, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What's God saying? He doesn't want your gifts. You can't have your heart. He doesn't want your wallet. If you can't have your heart, he doesn't want your hands. He doesn't want your works. He doesn't want your feet. He wants your heart. My son, give me your heart. For out of it flow the issues of life. That's the hardest thing to reconcile with God's word. It's reconciling your heart. It's not just knowing the word. It's loving the word. It's not just knowing God. It's loving God. It's not just knowing your brother. It's loving your brother. Are you knowing that you are having life, the eternal life? You can demonstrate that. You can build up your assurance by demonstrating the love of God towards your brother. How? Give to him when he's in need. How? Forgive him when he offends you. Another place it says that, uh, speaking of anger, it says, do not let the sun go down upon your anger. Keep a short account with your brothers. Do not let, if offence comes, and it will come, don't let it go a day. Get on the phone, get around to his house, reconcile it quickly. What's it say? Lest any root of bitterness spring up and many be defiled. And you know, if someone is holding a grudge towards someone else because they didn't, some grievous sin, like they parked in his spot, and then he comes up the stairs into the auditorium and there they are sitting in your seat. Goodness. Such sin. 
such grievous sins. Satan, Satan loves sin. He loves sin. He loves it when we sin. He's the great accuser of the brethren. And how many arrows are true arrows, things we've done <coughs> that he fires into us? Lift up the shield of faith, Christian, and extinguish every fiery dart of the wicked. Go to your brother. Leave your gift. Leave your service. Leave your sacrifices. Go and reconcile with them. If we're in American church now, I'll be telling you to get up and reconcile with that brother and uh, making you do it, but I'm not going to do that. But uh, you know the meaning. If you are wise, you know how to apply it. I pray God might bless uh, his word to your hearts this morning. I, bless, I pray that he might bless you with that knowledge of knowing him. Do you know him? And do you know that you're knowing him? Let's just close in a word of prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Your word is a light shining out of darkness. And we just pray that you'd shine that light in our hearts and minds. You'd cause us to go from this place today, Lord, realising that we have um, been in the presence of a living God. These aren't just the words of a man, these are the words of God, eternal words of light, love, and we, we thank you for them, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to grow, help us to be reassured that we're in Christ and we're safe. We have a heaven to look forward to and a Father who will welcome us with open arms in our Lord Jesus Christ.